have been many different attempts in the U.S. especially to find the right words and the right strategies to rein in health care costs associated with the overuse of expensive medical procedures and tests. For different reasons at different times, efforts have backfired and gotten entangled in approaches that sometimes have lost their compass and that the public has grown to distrust. Fast forward and just think of the difference between viewing one's primary care provider as the key to a medical home as opposed to a gatekeeper. Does choosing wisely, which challenges both physicians and patients to pause and consider and question and engage in constructive and respectful conversation about the need or not for very specific tests, such as MRIs, offer a similar hopeful change of tune and strategy? Organizers certainly hope so, and we're going to learn more about this new effort on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. I'm sorry about the little echo that's going on in the background. We're going to see if we can take care of that. But welcome, everyone. This is an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered biweekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. On this program, we try to lean into cutting-edge innovation and bold ideas to improve improve health, health care, and to lower health care costs. And I'm, on, I'm going to introduce the people behind Choosing Wisely and some other actors and keen observers of overuse and comparative effectiveness in just a moment. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He's here with me in the studio, and he's going to give you some guidance on how to engage with WIHI over this next hour. John. Thanks, speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. This format works best if you're on a high-speed connection. If you're on a slower connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick chat message to me at WIHI Admin. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If the problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. I'll flash a slide with that number in a little bit. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take the time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how you feel and how we've done. Back to Match. All right. Thanks so much, John. Um, let me now provide some brief introductions of our guests. There are longer bios on the WIHI pages of IHI.org. And joining us by phone, he's in Philadelphia today, Daniel Wolfson. He's the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the ABIM Foundation, focused on medical professionalism and physician leadership in quality, complementing the goals of the American Board of Internal Medicine. Welcome, Daniel Wolfson. Thank you. All right. Glad to be here. All right. Terrific. Stephen Pearson is joining us, I believe, from the Washington, D.C. area. He's an internist, researcher, ethicist, founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, known as ICER, I guess, at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Pearson. 
Hi, good afternoon. Terrific. Over on the West Coast in the state of Washington, Amanda Cost is on the line. She's a family medicine physician and faculty affiliated with both the University of Washington and Harborview Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Amanda Cost. Thanks. Dr. Karen Boudreau is also on the line from her new office at Boston Medical Center, where she's just become the chief medical officer for Boston Medical Center's Health Net Plan. Karen was just until recently a senior vice president at IHI focused on the continuum of care. Welcome, Karen Boudreau. Well, thank you, Madge, and it's such a great pleasure to be with my friends at IHI and, and, and ABIMF and all the other guests today, so thank you. Fantastic. And here in the studio with me is Dr. Don Goldman. He's an IHI Senior Vice President, expert in infectious disease. He's been keeping a close eye on comparative effectiveness research and policy and new and renewed efforts to reduce waste in U.S. healthcare. Welcome, Don. Hello, everybody. All right. So five doctors and me. Um, I decided that maybe was an okay ratio today, given that uh, one of the keys to the success of choosing wisely may be getting doctors especially, although I know it's a doctor-patient conversation, but getting doctors especially more engaged and interested in the overuse issue in their own practices and in the healthcare system as a whole. So Daniel Wolfson, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, uh, this is kind of your baby or your, and your colleagues' uh, brainchild. Tests and procedures and treatments are an awful lot of what makes the, the healthcare system go round in the US. Hold on, I'm gonna just stop one second. I'm getting a terrible feedback. Hold on one moment, I apologize. Not quite sure why. Just stopping for one second, everybody. Apologies. Ooh, that is so much better. Okay. Not sure what we just solved, but. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Tests and procedures make the healthcare system go around, and patients, uh, all of us in this room and on the phone, we don't always like the wait and see approach or being told that some uh, procedure may not actually be all that beneficial. So, what is it with choosing wisely that you think could be a game changer? Give us a thumbnail sense of uh, why uh, you've put so much energy into this whole effort here. Thanks, Matt. Um, the tests and procedures that people usually get are appropriately uh, performed. Uh, estimates are, though, that 30% uh, are not necessary. And the campaign is trying to focus on those tests and procedures that are not necessary, except in limited, uh, uh, limited um, instances. So um, the campaign... Uh, is having uh, specialty societies identify these tests and procedures that have little or no value and potentially harm. So um, the aim is to begin to have conversations between patients and physicians around areas where there's questions about the necessity of that test. Not absolutes, but oftentimes not indicated. Are you there? Yes. Okay. So give me some sense of what are your expectations? What do you think that this can do, this whole effort here, uh, that perhaps uh, hasn't been as effective up until now? So I think what's unique about this campaign is f four things. 
One is that the specialty societies are taking leadership in addressing things that are unnecessary and beginning to uh, have these conversations amongst themselves and amongst patients and physicians. And the messenger being physician leaders in the field with expert advice um, are driving this campaign and doing it within a, uh, a, a framework of professionalism. You just show the physician charter up on the, uh, on the screen. And one of the uh, uh, tenets of the physician charter is to uh, have a commitment to uh, being stewardship of, of resources, of finite resources. And so this derives, the whole, this whole campaign derives from the profession's commitment to thinking not only about uh, the patient's welfare, uh, but also uh, a larger issue of the resources that are being distributed through the patients they see and the patients in the community that they serve. So um, the, the charter uh, provides uh, that um, realm. Uh, already nine specialty societies have signed up uh, to, to um, uh, identify uh, five procedures in their area for a total of 45. Um, already, 11 more specialty societies have signed up and will be announcing those uh, five things uh, in the fall. Um, we're hoping uh, that this will cause an awareness um, and conversations amongst physicians and amongst patients and physicians and have more thoughtful conversations about the issue of unnecessary care than it's been in the past. The other parts of the campaign that are important is the messaging. Thinking about this from um, what's appropriate and what's unnecessary and what's wasteful is, I think, a right way of framing it, the right language to be thinking about as we have these thoughtful conversations. The third item that I think has been important is that these items are actionable. They're actionable, uh, they're limited numbers, and they're very directed about what to do. But they're not absolutes. They're not never-do never do, uh, events. As you can see from the list, there are times when you would want to do this procedure. Those are called uh, red flags, that something in the history of uh, uh, the patient's history would want you to do that procedure, um, for instance. Uh, family history of, of cardiovascular disease uh, might uh, make you want to do a particular test or previous uh, history uh, of the patient. Uh, so they're not absolutes. And the fourth thing is I think that's very important and probably the most important thing is really respect for the specialty societies uh, going forward as leaders and, and having other people uh, trusting uh, their leadership and the respect of the other stakeholders um, in, the, in the whole campaign. Not only are we doing this with physicians, but we're working with consumer reports to take um, what you're seeing on that uh, Choosing Wisely ACP five things patients should question and making that into patient-friendly uh, translations that patients and you and I, um, Madge, could understand. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We're also working with uh, a university to do communication tapes 
uh, that would permit physicians to learn the skills about how to explain to patients about unnecessary uh, care. Oftentimes, a physician will say, I just don't have time to explain why that test is unnecessary. And by providing the skills, that physician can be more efficient and more effective in explaining why that test and procedure might not be a benefit and potentially harmful. Thank you so much. Um, so that's uh, Daniel Wolfson of the ABIM Foundation talking about choosing wisely here on WIHI. And uh, these, some of the just quick slides that we're showing you here, if you're on the computer, um, there is so much rich material on the website. We've offered links from our own IHI.org, but if you go to the ABIM Foundation, you'll find all this rich material, and it's very, very nicely laid out um, and very clear. And I think, as Daniel uh, has been saying, the companion thing going on with Consumer Reports and their own web environment and efforts there are also to be applauded because it's so accessible and very, very understandable. So let me kind of move, we're going to kind of move around now with all our guests and, and you know, we'll, we'll get into some questions, as you know, in the second part here. Um, lots of questions, I'm sure, will occur to all of you, and we do not have time on WIHI, so I'm urging you to go and take a look at uh, some of these documents because you can see the five things that have bubbled up from the specialty societies. But Dr. Amanda Cost, out there in the state of Washington, your participation in a National Physician Alliance pilot project, which was funded by ABIM Foundation, and some other practices, uh, that's what gave others the courage to push things further and wider. So I'm curious what you've already been doing in family medicine that perhaps gave people uh, the sense that uh, this, this could be something that could be practiced even more widely. Welcome again. Thank you for having me. Um, I'll talk a little bit about my experience in our clinic. Um, so when I first presented this project to our clinic, uh, people were very excited to get involved. Um, I work in a hospital that's a safety net hospital, and so I think that people are aware of the fact that we have limited resources and we can't be ordering uh, really expensive tests for everybody that comes through the door um, without a reason for doing so. Um, it was interesting because um, the five things that came out for, uh, for our specialty family medicine, uh, People in my clinic, the providers in my clinic, looked at this and they said, well, you know, we don't do this. We, we know better than this. Of, of course I don't order these tests because I, I know this information and I know I shouldn't be ordering a test, uh, an x-ray early in the course of back pain or prescribing antibiotics for sinusitis. Um, and so I think that that's one of the barriers is that many physicians know that they're not supposed to be doing certain things, and they actually believe they're not doing it. Um, but as we undertook our kind of unofficial chart review to see specifically if people are ordering imaging early in the course of, uh, you know, uncomplicated back pain, people are doing it, um, and they just don't necessarily recognize that they're doing it. It could be for the reasons that we're already mentioned, uh, patients come and they expect a test. Um, it could be that the physician doesn't have time or doesn't um, know exactly how to explain to the patient uh, why this test isn't indicated. Um, so I think that that is uh, one of the first things that we'll need to address is physicians need to have metrics about what their practice is like so that when people come out with a, uh, with a recommendation to not do something, we can find out how often are we doing it and why did we do it in this case versus not the other. And 
are there physicians out there that are doing a great job that are in, in terms of choosing wisely for their test? And what are they doing differently that other physicians can learn from them? Mm -hmm. um, we are a residency training program, and so the training environment makes it yeah. um, a little bit different in the sense that uh, oftentimes uh, residents will come, they will come up with a plan, then they'll come and talk to the attending physician. And I actually had this come up um, in the case of a DEXA scan with one of our residents, and I said, you know, actually the the Preventative Services Task Force doesn't recommend a DEXA scan in this case, and we're part of this campaign to choose wisely. And it's difficult then for the, the trainee to go in and, and say, okay, so actually this plan that, came up with, that we came up with that sounded so great, actually we're going to have to backpedal and we're not going to order the test. And um, it's difficult to kind of manage patient expectations at that point. So um, as we proceed with our with our participation in this project, it will be interesting to see how the other training sites uh, manage this as well. I would also say one thing that um, is lacking uh, that's also been talked about before is that uh, we don't really receive a lot of training on how to talk to patients about testing that's not indicated. Um, you do somewhat in residency, but not really in medical school. And I think that this is something that needs to start way back, um, you know, in the first or second years of medical school, talking about good stewardship, uh, talking about how to uh, discuss with patients what are appropriate tests, what things are safe to kind of wait and see, um, and that sort of thing. So those have been the things that we've um, learned from our experience with the Choosing Wisely project. Thank you so much, uh, Amanda Cost, and I think you're making the connection to education and training and getting used to having these conversations as <clears throat> part of uh, ramping up to become a provider um, is, is really well taken. Um, maybe a nice uh, segue to you, Dr. Pearson, um, as you've been uh, watching kind of all this work, um, you know, kind of across the continuum of healthcare and over the lifespan even of physician training. So you're an expert in clinical and comparative effectiveness, and you've been looking at physician habit for years, and um, I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you even before we uh, got on the program today to sort of get your wisdom on what you think choosing wisely and this approach now might be able to contribute uh, to this effort at stewardship and better um, really effectiveness using uh, treatments really needed. Welcome. Well, thank you again. First, I just have to say hats off to the ABIM Foundation and the medical societies and uh, consumers report because this initiative, I think it, it's truly courageous and it's no less courageous just because it's long overdue. Um, as Dr. Coase said, a lot of this evidence has been out there for many years that, uh, you know, many of these interventions have fairly definitive uh, studies showing that they do not contribute to uh, improved patient outcomes and in many cases just, you know, cause extra work or even poorer patient outcomes. And yet it's been, I think, very difficult for the professional societies to kind of get lined up and to figure out the right way to talk about these issues. Um, and I think the catalyst that's been provided here by the leadership of the ABM Foundation and the others is really, is really striking and should be applauded. Um, I do think that looking forward, it's going to be a very interesting path that, that they're on and that, that, you know, others who are in favor of this general thoughtfulness and reflectiveness about medical practice will, will try to walk together. First off is, again, they've, they've picked topics where the, the evidence, I think, is, is relatively clear that in most cases these are truly wasteful practices. 
And I know the word waste is being de-emphasized, but it's in a sense low-hanging fruit, which is where they should start, um, where it's most evident that these interventions do not help patients. Um, but relatively soon, I actually hope that they will continue, obviously, in this vein, but at some point, I think the societies and others are going to have to grapple with perhaps more difficult questions around interventions where there may not be such definitive evidence that they are not helpful, um, but where we don't have good evidence um, whether they are or they aren't. And so the real question of should clinicians err on the side of caution, prudence, um, if you will, um, before uh, doing new interventions or using interventions outside of uh, you know where the evidence has shown that they are effective, I think those will be much more difficult uh, topics in a sense, but that's probably where most of the potential benefit, uh, both on clinical outcomes and certainly uh, controlling costs, lies um, down the road. Um, I, I do think that, to a certain extent, the environment, um, even though, again, this is long overdue, there are certain things happening in the healthcare landscape that are going to support this in an important way. One, which has been going on for quite some time, is that patients are increasingly um, burdened by financial responsibility for their own health care. And so I think they are increasingly aware that they have to pay a larger share and that they do have an incentive to question some of the decisions about tests and treatments um, in conversations with their doctor. And this kind of initiative can give them the tools um, to open up those conversations or at least to participate in them fully as they really should. The other piece that's changing is the, the larger shift in the way that clinicians and, and provider groups and healthcare systems are being paid. Um, at the national level, there's a growing interest in trying to shift the payment structure from fee-for-service to more global payments to uh, provide organizations such as accountable care uh, organizations and others. And I, again, as I think as that movement continues to take place, both through federal payments, through Medicare, but also in the private healthcare, uh, private insurance landscape, um, I think it will now come more and more to clinicians to think hard about, you know, what tests and treatments really are um, in patients' best interests um, and how do we provide even better care um, at lower costs. And so focusing the attention of providers by changing their incentives will align with the way that patients are increasingly thinking and the leadership of independent groups without strong conflicts of interest and particularly led by doctors and hopefully in, in true collaboration with patients, I think offers, again, a, a tremendous opportunity. And um, with all that being said, again, I think to get it started in the way that the ABIM Foundation has with its partners um, is really striking, and it's a very positive sign. Terrific. Uh, before I turn to Don Goldman and Karen Boudreau, I'm going to flash up here this uh, slide of something I had no uh, idea about. It's called the New England Comparative Effectiveness Public Advisory Council, and I'm very intrigued with this. Maybe you could just, in a minute, tell us what this is. Oh, sure. Um, uh, ICER received a grant from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality uh, to try to figure out how to adapt their evidence reviews so that they could be more effectively used by decision makers. And what we decided to do was to work um, with a very broad multi-stakeholder uh, kind of consortium uh, among all six New England states that includes the state Medicaid programs, uh, regional uh, private health plans, uh, clinician groups, patient advocacy groups, and others, um, 
And what we've done is we've created a public council that is composed of two-thirds clinicians in, in practice and one-third patient and public representatives, all of whom have some experience looking at evidence. But we, they meet in public to debate on the findings of AHRQ evidence reviews um, with a twist. The twist is that they get extra information on how these services are being used in their own states, in their own region, and whether there's a lot of variation, whether there's certain signals, if you will, that certain services might be underused or overused. They also get information and are asked to deliberate in public on the costs and cost effectiveness of these different interventions. And at the end of the day, they make policy recommendations, but also take um, very formal votes on whether the evidence is adequate to demonstrate, for instance, that a new approach to care for a certain condition is as good or better than other options, and at what value, high value, low value, or reasonable value, given the costs uh, concerned. So in a way, this is a, another mechanism for the public and for practicing clinicians to engage on just the same kind of issues that Choosing Wisely does, which is how do we identify um, and work together to um, use evidence and to interpret it in a way and apply it so that we really can squeeze the waste out, and not just that, but also choose the, the ways that we can care for patients um, that will provide the highest uh, um, quality at the best price. So that, that's what yeah. this initiative is about, and I think it dovetails yeah. quite nicely with the overall thrust of what Choosing Wisely is trying to do. Well, thank you very much, and I just wanted to get that in there because it's, a, to me, a very interesting development um, in the town square of some sort, and I think bringing the public into a, a hard discussion but a necessary one. So thank you, Stephen Pearson. Don Goldman, let me now turn to you. I recall the day here at IHI where you came trotting by my office door and told me that Daniel Wolfson was visiting, and uh, you were very, very excited about this effort. So. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, this is an early, uh, well, there have been some sort of uh, preparation uh, going on now for a while, but the campaign launched in April for real. And uh, what are your early thoughts on this? Well, it's fantastic, and I've been busily lobbying my own professional society as well as another society I work with to join the efforts. Uh, I'm an infectious disease specialist, and if we look at antibiotics and, and the uh, emphasis on antibiotic stewardship, clearly this is something that's important. Uh, that reminds me to uh, mention that uh, we tend to categorize uh, the uh, waste aspect of this and talk about cost uh, and evidence, uh, but you know, when you think about it, if you look at antibiotics, there's also harm. Uh, you know, antibiotics uh, cause a lot of adverse events. It's one of the leading uh, reasons that people are admitted to the hospital, side effects from uh, antibiotics. Uh, just today you read in the New York Times, I'm sure, whatever paper you read, that the ZPAC is now associated with death uh, in uh, patients with uh, cardiac disease who take it, and uh, one hopes that uh, it's not uh, unnecessary uh, treatment. Uh, What's the ZPAC just for? ZPAC is azithromycin. I'm ah, using the popular okay. Okay. Uh, yep. designation because that leads me to point two, which yep. is the barriers that we face uh, in trying to uh, deal with this problem. One of them is uh, the relentless uh, advertising, often public, uh, on TV, and you know you barely watch TV without seeing an ad for a pharmaceutical uh, company. Uh, and uh, that's a pervasive force in our society. And ZPAC and Purple Pill have become part of our vocabulary. 
and I think it confuses uh, uh, the patients uh, that we're trying to treat. We do have a treatment society. I, I once did a study comparing attitudes about antibiotics among parents in Germany and the United States. In Germany, you have to persuade a parent to give a child antibiotics because they believe that natural remedies for things like earaches are, are a better way to go. In this country, you have to uh, persuade a, a parent that uh, antibiotics usually don't work uh, or add benefit for earaches. So different culture. Uh, among clinicians, uh, and I'm sure Daniel's already faced this in trying to get the professional societies on board, there are uh, cadres of doctors who regard this as bread and butter. Uh, if they're uh, radiologists or orthopedic surgeons or infectious disease specialists, it's in a way we make our livelihood over prescribing uh, and ordering diagnostic tests. So all of these are very important, and, and even the healthcare system confuses patients. So. I'm driving to work, and even NPR, Madge's <laughs> beloved uh, the former organization, will have an ad from a medical center in the yep. Boston area touting proton beam treatment for prostate cancer. That's a complicated subject. I don't know if that expensive therapy does good or not. Maybe Steve Pearson can tell us. Uh, but I think that confuses patients when the next time we turn around, they go to that same institution, and a doctor's saying, well, let's choose wisely. So we've got to get our act together here. Wow. Okay. Spo <laughs> I can't put a finer point on that. Thank you, Don Goldman. Uh, all right, Karen, you have to follow Don's act here, but you're used to that. Um, Karen Boudreau, uh, welcome uh, to, to the program as well. And um, I think, feel free to comment on any aspect of this before we go to chat and discussion, but I, I think uh, I, I was going to ask you your sense about, you know, how these discussions kind of play out in real encounters in the along the lines of, uh, what Amanda Koss was talking about. I mean, how these conversations happen and do they work well uh, with the kinds of redesigns uh, that are being sought right now in physician practice uh, to make these kinds of discussions possible? Well, thanks, Madge. And, and I, you know, the, the fun is uh, that I get to sort of put together all of the comments that everyone's made. And you're right, I am used to following Don <laughs> Goldman. So this is great. Um, you know, I think that, um, as Amanda said, these conversations are challenging in real life um, because of time constraints, because of previous um, advertising or reading or, or discussions that patients may have had with their friends and family, um, because it's difficult for physicians uh, and any healthcare pr practitioners to feel like they're coming across as withholding something even when withholding it is actually the right idea. Um, so it can be very, very challenging. And I'm going to go back to, to something Don said about the CDC. He was talking specifically about the antibiotic stewardship most recently that they've been working on. But way back when, when I was in practice in Western Massachusetts, um, and we were part of the Kaiser Permanente system, and we had um, information up in the exam rooms during cold and flu season, about the use of antibiotics, and there have been studies that have confirmed this, that having information up from the CDC, from sort of what is, is viewed as a, uh, a different kind of advocacy organization, not, not with a, a cost or uh, money-saving necessarily bent, um, that having that information up and having an alternative to antibiotics in the way of a cold care kit or 
or some specific things that people could do actually made it easier to have that conversation about not giving antibiotics with, uh, with an upper respiratory infection. And it, it makes it easier for the clinician because they feel like they're not trying to make the case by themselves where, you know, sometimes our advice is, is, is welcomed and people say, yes, you know, I'll do whatever you say. Uh, but sometimes when we are not necessarily in alignment with what a, what a patient might come in hoping for, um, it gets a lot more difficult. So having this information, having the specialty societies and others um, supporting the information just gives us an, another stronger leg to stand on when we're having those conversations with patients. Um, it won't work with all patients. We're not asking, I don't think, for it to necessarily work with all patients. But if it can make one or two conversations every day a little bit easier for primary care practitioners and specialists across the country, that saves an enormous amount of time collectively. It saves relationships. It makes it easier to relate with patients. And I think the final point that I would make is that, um, you know, Madge, you had mentioned the notion of redesigning care and, and the whole effort on health homes or medical homes and, and shared decision-making. These are tremendously important tools in helping patients to really participate in the conversation and have information that's useful to them uh, as they make the decisions together with their providers. So I think it's enormously exciting. I think the final thing that I would say is, is similar to the challenges that a physician and, or a nurse practitioner or a PA or any clinician faces in the conversation with the patient. Health plans face that similar challenge when dealing with, med, with their members, um, right. that, that it, it can be uh, not necessarily viewed that our advice about avoiding unnecessary care or care that's not going to particularly help, the motives behind that aren't always fully appreciated. And so it can be very difficult to get that message across without it appearing to be related to some other agenda. And so, again, this kind of effort that goes across the board that is uh, really embraced by the specialty societies, by the, the national organizations that represent physicians and other clinicians is enormously helpful to us. Great. Well, thank you so much, Karen uh, Boudreaux. It's, it's so nice to hear your voice and to have you part of this conversation here. And uh, I do think, as we've all sort of acknowledged, that there's kind of a legacy, uh, at least here in the U.S., of, uh, you know, problematic ways and folks uh, growing to distrust certain efforts. But perhaps we have uh, a, a different platform uh, from which to operate right now. I can see that uh, folks are already getting warmed up uh, with chat and have sent some things to John, which he's passing along. And let me just say, as we transition now uh, to your questions and comments, and uh, hope uh, we can get to the, as many of them as possible before the hour is up, I want to just acknowledge uh, several people actually emailed me ahead of today's program uh, with some thoughts and comments, and I encourage them I, uh, to hopefully get on the program and share them with you today. One in particular I just want to draw attention to, a wonderful nurse from South Carolina, Nancy Durang. She wrote up a, a story, uh, essentially her experience with her elderly mom and what they went through to ensure that a number of tests and procedures were not performed in accordance with her mother's living will. So it was a very, very interesting issue about tests and procedures and uh, things to do in the in 
in a kind of uh, medical crisis uh, at, the, at the same time that somebody uh, at an advanced age in her life and with some fairly advanced uh, chronic issues also had uh, some limits about what she wanted. And so kind of both those areas and issues uh, were represented in Nancy's story, and we're going to post that to the resource page uh, in conjunction with today's program. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. All right, John, you want to just quickly remind people uh, about use of chat, and uh, we'll get the discussion going. Okay, of course, Madge, thanks. Uh, now, of course, uh, here's the chat window again. Um, it's to your right. Just make sure all your questions are labeled to all participants. You can see that down uh, the little click, uh, click box there, all participants, that way that I can see your chat, and uh, Madge and all our panelists can as well. So uh, if you have any questions, let us know. Thanks. All right, thanks a lot. So, all right, so somebody is saying that um, allergy to antibiotics. I'm sorry, I've got to read this all. I have... All right, I'm going to read this one. Um, these kids have them expensive, stronger antibiotics ordered every time. Can you come up with a list of things that we should do? So this has to do with kids and allergies um, and antibiotics. I'm going to ask um, maybe, Don, you might uh, take a, a peek at this because this is near and dear, and maybe you could quickly summarize what this person has asked. Yeah, I think that this uh, individual is getting at a pervasive problem with antibiotics, which especially with the penicillin drugs, uh, which is uh, caregivers are so afraid of adverse events, especially anaphylaxis, that they uh, sometimes overinterpret the uh, allergy situation. The, the, there's no really great answer. Uh, there are tests available to determine if patients are allergic, but they're not really suitable for office practice. So uh, I think the best thing to do is when this issue comes up to really thoroughly document it and as best you can and make a decision, yes, no, this is uh, uh, really an allergy or not, and then keep that in the medical record so that it's always accessible so that uh, when an emergency comes up or another situation, somebody won't be guessing or acting uh, too quickly. So I think that's the best advice I can give. Okay, thank you. Uh, somebody I just, Steve, can I jump in on that too? Please, go right ahead. <clears throat> Steve Pearson. I was just going to say, it raises a, a broader and I think important point, which is um, I think this campaign, it is focused on things not to do, or at least to question. And a lot of the actually great work that uh, actually groups like IHI and others have done have shown that to change behavior, it's very helpful to give clinicians and patients something to do in place of the thing that they shouldn't do or should at least question, and creating a conscious option that really looks like a better uh, value. For instance, in my practice group years ago, we recognized that, that patients who were looking for antibiotics or some intense or, or you know, x-ray imaging for sinusitis, that kind of thing, we needed to make sure that they felt like they were being taken very seriously. And we created, in a sense, a, a, what was a prescription pad that laid out very clearly and in a professional manner the self-care uh, approach that they should take. We would pick certain boxes on this form. And in having it as part of a pad that would be, you know, in a sense viewed by the patient and the clinician as something, um, as a clear option, it really helped facilitate the conversation. So I think thinking creatively within practices around ways to have the conversation and to frame an option for yes, not just a no, is going to be really important. Thanks. 
Don, did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. I, had, I had a, uh, yeah. wanted to bring Daniel into the yeah. conversation. Mm-hmm. I think there's a question I've been itching to ask. I, I just visited yesterday by someone hired by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality uh, that uh, spends tons of money on the evidence base for treatments and diagnostics, and she wanted to know my impressions and so forth. And one of the things I ended up discussing with her, some left, was alignment. So I'm responding here to the question from uh, Tara about uh, decision aids, and there's lots of decision aids out there. It looks like ABIM Foundation's got some really spiffy-looking one. Uh, can you t- how are you aligning with uh, HRQ and their decision aids and uh, Al Mully at Dartmouth and his decision aids and all and Zinks uh, with their hot-linked hot, uh, uh, decision aids? H- how are you doing that? Daniel? Yes. Um, I want to just uh, say something I didn't say uh, before, and I want to give credit to the National Physician Alliance, who we gave a grant to about two years ago and came up with this notion of five things uh, in internal medicine, pediatrics, uh, and internal medicine. And and an article written by Howard Brody at the same time uh, in New England uh, calling on specialty societies to do that. Don, this campaign is largely around having these conversations and changing attitudes and culture. And right now, that's the, the stage of, of this campaign that we're at. I think that uh, baking this into uh, decision-making tools uh, will be an important uh, part of many strategies that many smart people in delivery systems will be addressing. So our, our, our role, I think, is to begin to put the specialty societies um, as the Paul Revere, um, for you people in Boston. Um, uh, uh, Paul Revere was listened to uh, throughout the night because he was Paul Revere. He was a leader. And we want to put the leaders out in front to increase this awareness of specific procedures we want to be a catalyst and, a stim, uh, and stimulate delivery systems to begin to think about measurement, think about feedback, think about maybe even academic detailing around this. Non-financial and, and financial incentives are important. Medical decision-making is important. So we'd like to see a 1,000 flowers bloom with creative solutions about how to put these practices, um, these recommendations into practice. But at, at, at this point, you know, we're really trying to get more societies on board, as I said, and um, let uh, the delivery systems begin to think about uh, how they want to use quality improvement techniques uh, to advance. But what makes this different uh, than anything I think before it is that the, the physician societies, the medical societies, are out in front. And that makes it different than what's come before. I think that makes it not just a quality improvement initiative. It makes it more of like a social movement where people are having conversations and changing their attitudes about what underuse is all about. And I think all these other things that Steve said about, you know, structural changes and alignment and incentives and people having to pay more out of pocket and ACOs and, and, and medical homes are all aligning and, and I think creating the tsunami that we want to see in healthcare. And just to get to Steve's point, I think he's right that there are other conversations that are more difficult to talk about. 
But in a conversation with Howard Brody, we sat there and said, Howard, do you think we should go to more difficult conversations? And his response to me was, what if we were to eliminate 30% of the waste in America? Wouldn't that be incredible? And we can't do that overnight. But I think if we focus on waste for a sustained amount of period, it's going to change the economics of healthcare and change the economics of education and highways and everything else that is, you know, being sacrificed because of high medical costs. Thanks very much, uh, Daniel. And I want to just, I noticed there's some interesting questions here. Some of them have to do with the kind of dynamics uh, with parents uh, who are worried uh, about things being missed if there aren't certain kinds of tests. And then there's another question that's asking about our, our whole um, culture around defensive medicine and concerns about lawsuits, et cetera. I, I think before we get into the macro of some of that, maybe I'm going to swing back to you, Amanda Cost, and perhaps Karen Boudreaux, you could come back in. I mean, in the, the sort of day-to-day -day practice uh, of, of, of medicine here, I'm curious, Amanda, have, how has this, has this come up in discussion with other physicians uh, as you've been working on the five things notion? And maybe uh, Karen could speak to that as well, um, whether we have an opportunity here to sort of tip the scales and this not be about defensive medicine. Yes, certainly I think this has come up in our clinic, and I think that this is really where um, primary care can win in the sense that um, having a patient-centered medical home that has a continuity of a, of a provider. So it's much more difficult for me to convince a patient that I've never met before that it's safe to wait to perform an MRI because of their low back pain than a patient that I've been seeing for several years and have a relationship with and they already trust me. Um, so I think having a, a team approach, having a n number of providers that the patient knows and trusts and is being cared for by a medical home will make these conversations easier. Um, I also think that uh, having, uh, I think someone before was talking a little bit more about kind of contingency planning. Um, you know, if you're not getting better, then we're going to do this sort of thing. Here are the self-care things that you can do. Here is a prescription um, that's not a medication or not a test, but things that you can do to address your condition. I think that that's really important. I think people... Um, don't want to feel that we're not taking their concerns seriously and that um, we are just putting them in a category of, okay, low back pain of less than six weeks, I, less than six weeks, I, less than six weeks, I don't need to do anything. I think that, um, you know, really taking time to explain to the patient, we will go ahead and do something if you're not any better. But a majority of people will feel better within one to two weeks. And if you're not feeling better, I want you to come back and talk to me. And leaving those doors of communication open and also educating the patient about the things that I would want to know about. So if you get a fever or if you start having weakness, I want to know about that right away because those are, are, are signs to me that I would need to do something um, to further investigate that. So I think the self-care is important. Also, educating the patient about what would change your mind about the imaging, and then the continuity of provider is really key um, in terms of having a trusting relationship where the person believes that you're acting in their best interest and not just trying to uh, deny care for the sake of uh, uh, decreasing waste. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amanda. Karen, your thoughts on this, and I'm wondering can you imagine arenas where physicians uh, can kind of work some of this out amongst themselves to sort of help share and <laughs> sort of uh, both kind of get on board and sort of learn some skills from one another on this? 
Absolutely. Um, and I, uh, first of all, I would completely echo what Amanda has just said. I think it's, it's, it's critically important to, um, to get that viewpoint, and I think the trust and relationship pieces are key. Um, uh, I also think that even in an instance where you don't have a relationship with the patient, having that sort of um, external third-party uh, stamp of approval does make it a little bit easier to have some of those conversations with, with even folks that you don't really know very well. Um, you know, I think um, relating back to the notion of, of practice redesign and, and, and physician and practice organizations becoming more accountable for the overall care they provide um, and understanding the variation among themselves that can have an impact not only on the quality of care, but the safety and cost of care represents a really exciting opportunity that, that Choosing Wisely feeds right into. Um, you know, when, when practices begin to look at their own data and say, huh, you know, uh, I am a person who orders brand name uh, cholesterol medications all of the time for all of my patients, and you never do. Um, there is no single answer as to you know what percent of patients should have brand name uh, cholesterol medicines, but it's not zero and it's not a hundred, so it's somewhere in between. How are we as a practice going to address that particular issue? Mm -hmm. I chose that out of the air, but looking at these kind of waste things and saying, you know. I do it this way, you do it that way. Can we come together? Can we learn from each other? And how have you been having those conversations? Can we practice this together? This is all very new for a lot of organizations that just haven't thought that way about any kind of consistency within their practice, and it's a terrific opportunity to begin to experiment with that. That's great, uh, Karen. I'm not looking at a question from Tara and is asked, who's asking with the efforts towards less tests perhaps, where there also be renewed focus on hands-on diagnosis. Um, and uh, maybe I'll throw that one at you, Don Goldman, because sometimes at um, IHI staff meetings, Don wants to be make make sure that we don't all start, you know, bashing modern medicine and what modern medicine can also yield. So, uh, what's your thought about that? Well, it's a difficult <laughs> question. There are two yeah. aspects to it. Mitch. Yeah. One is the hands-on piece. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think we face a real issue around trust, as uh, Karen was discussing. This is all uh, premised on a trusting relationship between doctor and a patient, and for many patients, and uh, at least the older patients, uh, the hands-on aspect of medicine is uh, uh, far more important than what's on the computer screen. Now, that's all changing, and it may actually affect our paradigm about what will be needed to establish trust, and it will probably need a whole new art of medicine. So the hands-on piece is uh, very important. I, I, I must say I do get uh, a little edgy uh, when we constantly emphasize the gaps in medical practice and the uh, problems in medical care and doctors are not doing what they should do 55% of the time. I, I get a little bit testy about that because uh, uh, I know that uh, there are many uh, 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 medical miracles and that the vast majority of doctors are really working hard on behalf of their patients and giving them some credit will uh, actually help uh, get some trust from the physician community, which in some respects I think is lacking when uh, pay for performance and and uh, profiling and, and, and comparisons on websites. I got a rating of 8.5 from some agency 
uh, that I never heard of before about my infectious disease reputation. And I noticed it could have been a 10. I have no idea about it. That leads me oh, to distrust <laughs> uh, random profiling and pay for performance yeah. to some extent. So we need to deal with that. Right. Well, thank you. I, I, uh, you never know what, what Don's going to let us know. So that, <laughs> I'm worth a 10. You're worth a 10. We, we would all vote. Wouldn't you're we all, always a 10, Don. We would always go for a 10. <laughs> let me ask a question um, back to Daniel. Uh, sort of some brass tacks uh, just so that we make sure we don't uh, lose this. I'm curious if a specialty society or anybody wants to get involved in this campaign, how they can do so. Uh, are you only looking for special specialty societies right now? And the second part, I guess I want to ask you very quickly, are some of these societies engaging in efforts and discussions and education themselves to sort of bring their members? I realize you said, you know, the, the organizations have, you know, taken a real stand and put a stake in the ground and being very visible here. What are they doing to sort of help uh, educate and, um, you know, really deepen uh, the understanding of these issues from within? I'm glad you asked that question. Let me give you an example of the American Society of Clinical Ecology, what they are, they've already done and what they plan to do. Uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, after Right before the five things came out, did a uh, article in clinical oncology explaining in detail the five things, the evidence behind them. Um, they also sent out to their members information uh, uh, on the campaign and why they were involved. At the next meeting of clinical oncology, there will be a session that will develop the next five things that they would like to recommend, and there'll be a voting throughout the entire conference on those. Uh, selected candidates for recommendation. The societies are uh, distributing the will be distributing the consumer report conversions, and they'll be uh, working with consumer reports to do those translations. And we're hoping many will uh, take advantage of this com uh, communication of the modules. The people who are joining the campaign are the uh, specialty societies. And as I said, 11 more will be joining the nine, so there'll be 20 altogether. And there's also some consumer groups that are working with uh, consumer reports to distribute uh, these uh, translations of the five things. They are AARP, the Alliance of Health Networks, Leapfrog Group, Business uh, Group on Health, uh, the National Business uh, Coalition, the National Business uh, Group on Health, the National Center for farmers, workers, Wikipedia uh, is working to uh, go through the Wikipedia and uh, insert the five, rec the 45 recommendations that have already come out. Um, so that that's very exciting. Uh, and we also have the Alliance for Health Networks, which is a, a consumer-focused, uh, disease-focused uh, chat group, particularly around diabetes. So we're very excited about that consumer-employer coalition. And one uh, last question I want to ask you uh, also just, you know, it'll maybe tee up a further program. Somebody is asking uh, me already or us to plan for a follow-up program, and we certainly can and will. How are you going to track uh, kind of uh, this effort? Uh, what does success look like, and uh, is there some research associated in terms of uh, any changes in patterns of ordering tests or, or not? Good question. Uh, let me make sure, though, to uh, shout out the choosingwisely.org um, 
okay. a website so you can get information, and you can go to the ABIM Foundation and look at the blog, and I have several uh, blog posts uh, addressing the aspects of choosing wisely, including uh, the notion of, of measuring of success. So uh, initially, um, what we're going to try to do is capture changes of attitude and changes of culture. Without changes of attitude and changes of culture, behavioral change cannot occur. Um, what we're seeing uh, is lots of activities from delivery systems, and we're trying to capture those stories about how they're beginning to grapple with implementation of those recommendations. Um, and we're catalyzing people to provide grants uh, for organizations, for specialty societies, for communities to begin to think about the implementation of these recommendations. And within every one of those, they, of course, will be a, uh, a, a evaluation process. But what we see as the initial success of this campaign that should not be overlooked is that the tenor of the conversation is changed from an hysterical conversation during healthcare reform to a more thoughtful conversation about overuse in the, in the American medical system. And to, to our way of thinking about it, the media, almost to a T, got it right. They are thinking about this issue in much different ways than they did before, and I think that's largely because of the specialty societies. Um, so for me, mm -hmm. uh, we've had initial success. We were able to produce 45 things that were overused, and we've changed the conversation in America about overuse. Well, thank you very much, and um, I think these are all things that we can uh, uh, look to and follow, and um, I'd be happy to come back to this. Stephen Pearson, uh, we haven't heard from you in a few minutes, and I think I'm going to give you the last word uh, before I make some wrap-up remarks. Stick around, of all of you, if you can, uh, just for some important information. But, uh, Stephen, I'd love to just let you uh, leave us with some final thoughts. Well, it's hard to top Dan's eloquent quote uh, <laughs> there, but I will say that, you know, for, for decades, uh, there were small clusters of clinicians, largely, many of whom were, in a sense, sponsored or working with the societies, who talked about this idea of stewardship as a core ethical duty of the profession and of individual clinicians. This is just one of the most impressive uh, manifestations of a real action that will make that responsibility, something um, that, real, that physicians will live in their daily practice lives. I really do hope it gets traction. I personally do hope that the societies will consider to look at the bigger picture. Don, I think, Don Goldman raised the question of prostate, uh, I'm sorry, proton beam cancer therapy. That's a great example of something for which we don't have good evidence that it's useless um, or not better. We don't have any evidence that it is as good or better, and yet it's three to five times as expensive. So is it wise choosing to send patients for proton beam therapy for prostate cancer? I don't think many clinicians or societies feel like they're at the point where they can start to grapple with that question, but I do think we've hopefully started on the road to getting there because that's where I think much of that 30% lies and I think it's the, the future ethical conversation that we will hope to have as a profession with the rest of the, of the country. 
Well, thank you very much. I want to thank Stephen Pearson, Amanda Cost, Don Goldman, uh, Karen Boudreau, and Daniel Wolfson. Uh, sometimes out of, mostly out of sight for all of you, uh, an awful lot of phone calls and emails go back and forth in planning this program. Also want to make a very quick mention of an IHI expedition that's going to get started, a five-part web-based program. It begins June 12th, Partnering Quality and Finance, Teams to Improve Value. So this is an opportunity to bring those two uh, worlds of healthcare and within your organizations closer together on cost and quality, of which... Uh, what we're talking about today is, of course, uh, quite relevant as well. You can check out more information on that uh, on IHI.org. Go over to our Facebook page if you have a moment. Uh, Jane Rosner's going to write up some thoughts uh, as she's been listening to today's show. You can find the small Facebook icon at the bottom of the IHI.org homepage, and uh, we can continue to talk about some of these issues there. By tomorrow morning, there will be an archived page that will contain the uh, audio of today's program as, as well as related resources. Next up on WIHI on June 7th, we're going to be talking about situational awareness and patient safety. Really some very exciting stuff out of uh, Cincinnati Children's and some other places we'll be talking about. Uh, a very, very uh, acute sense of mindfulness and um, heading off uh, problems before they occur. And the website on uh, that program is now available, and you can enroll whenever you'd like. A uh, reminder that when you download, um, when you get off the program today, you can download the chat and any slides we used, and we would really appreciate it if you take just a minute or two to fill out a brief survey. Let us know what worked for you for today's program and uh, how we can always make it better. Any questions whatsoever, email us at info at IHI.org. The people who helped make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and Rachel Yates from um, Northeastern University. And I, uh, we didn't get our music going today. Uh, in fact, we had a little bit of Van Morrison. We'll get that back on our next show. Thanks for your patience. Uh, we are always trying to smooth out some of the audio issues here. That's just the name of the game. You've been a great uh, group today. It's my pleasure uh, to host a program that's about patient safety uh, and learning most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day, everyone. <laughs>